Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. Bet on all your favorite sports by accessing a wide range of pregame and in-play betting across the NFL, NCAA football, NBA, NCAA basketball, MLB, NHL, and more. Download now on iOS and Android, available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 or older. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Hello there. Happy trade deadline week. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, remotely by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. You said a week, right? Not day? Because with the amount of activity we've had in the last, what, since Friday, in four days, I feel like we've had between the Norm Rocco trade, the Levert trade, now the CJ McCollum trade, of which we're about to talk about. I feel like we've had enough big-ish deals that would usually consume an entire deadline day. And yet we are recording this and we're still more than 48 hours away from the actual deadline, so... A lot of movement. It's been fun, and I think uh, I think this week could get pretty damn crazy in the NBA. Yeah, or just all these big moves get done before the deadline, and it conspires to make deadline day itself something of a snooze. I mean, like our a, a, jobs a couple of the big running. dominoes have already fallen, right? Like, not saying nothing else of import is going to happen, but uh, definitely a couple of big ones have already been knocked out of the way. So, uh, you want to dive into this stuff? Absolutely. All right, so why don't we start with the big trade from this morning. CJ McCollum, Larry Nance going to New Orleans in exchange for Josh Hart, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, the Pelicans' top four protected 2022 first-rounder, and a pair of future seconds. Did, did you see the way talk the about this move breakdown on that pick as well? Because like, that pick was also the same pick that New Orleans had traded to Charlotte when they got Devontae Graham. Right, so there's a that, reverse protection on it yeah. as well, right? From 15 to 30. Right. If it's 15 to 30, it goes to Charlotte. If it's uh, 5 to 14, it goes to Portland. If it's 1 to 4, it stays in New Orleans. I guess it is possible that it'll wind up in that 15 to 30 range. Like, how does it work if the Pelicans win the play-in to make it into the playoffs in terms of the standings? But, like, if they're the 10th seed, for instance, right? You know, but their you know draft pick, if they make the playoffs, their they would their their draft positioning Slot. would move. So say they would win the the play in and end up with the eight seed, right? Like they win the ten versus nine, and then they beat the loser seven versus eight. So they get the eight seed. They win that leapfrog two teams out of lottery position into you know like the the playoff range of it, and and then yeah, then the pick would convey to Charlotte, right? And it's interesting implications for Charlotte, too, because if they don't get that pick this year, it converts to a second rounder for them. Right. So obviously it's like they they really want uh, that pick to land outside the top 15. And for the Blazers, I mean, if it doesn't convey to them this year, it, they're still owed a first rounder moving right. forward. But I think this is the year that they probably want to get it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, but like you would assume that the Pelicans will be better next year than they've been yes. this and year. So. 
New Orleans should at the very least be a playing team. Having said that, I guess it is possible they lose a playing game, still end up in the lottery. Mm-hmm. And so the Blazers almost should end up with the pick this year because it's very unlikely it ends up one to four. I think the Pelicans end up in the play-in, but I don't know if they actually make the playoffs proper. Like I, I think the most likely scenario right now, again, barring barring any changes in Zion's status would be the Pelicans make the play-in, maybe don't make the playoffs. Pick ends up five to 14. Portland gets it this year. And Charlotte's kind of shit out of luck there. But I don't know. I guess it's not out of the realm of possibility. Can we look at the teams that are in the West play-in grouping as of now? It's the Wolves in seventh, the Clippers in eighth, the Lakers in ninth, and the Pelicans in tenth. Right. So say it started today. Would you be shocked, you know, with a healthy Zion if the Pelicans were one of the two teams to emerge from that group? I wouldn't. I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't pick them, though. Oh, you sorry, with a healthy Zion? Well, yeah. I mean, without a healthy Zion, then no, they're, I, I don't think they're they're right. escaping uh, that four-team mix. But I don't think the Pelicans would beat either of the Lakers or Timberwolves without Zion back. And I'm just... No, I'm, no, no. I'm not going to make I any know. assumptions I mean, I'm, But Zion. I'm saying, like, with the healthy Zion, I, I think you at least have to give them a puncher's chance yeah, of absolutely. getting the seven or eight seed. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. It's just that, as we've come to learn... There should never be an assumption when it comes to Zion Williamson returning. Yeah. Um, okay. We've spent enough time talking about the protections on that pick. Let's let's dive in a little deeper here. What which team do you want to start with uh, in terms of this trade? Well, okay. Look, obviously the the team to talk about is New Orleans. They're the team that got better. They're the team that like you know made a, somewhat of a gamble to get a guy in CJ. But maybe we just get the Blazers out of the way to start because we also. I think it ties in to what we discussed with the Blazers when it was on Friday, you know, when we, when they made the trade to send Norm and Covington to the Clippers, where it was like, we understand the thought process of maybe starting to tear things down or cost cutting, whatever. But the sequence of moves, like when you put everything together, they're just, they're operating poorly from a basketball business scenario. If you want to talk about just pure dollars and cents and maybe the, the, the money they're saving, fine. But from a basketball business viewpoint they're mismanaging this and that continued i think today like the fact that they traded cj isn't uh you know a a necessarily wrong decision to me the the way they went about it like to me and and very obviously they went about this entire process as a cost cutting exercise instead of an asset hunting exercise and that to me was a ginormous mistake because you pointed this out on twitter as well i did as well like they could open up now theoretically like $60 million in cap space. Okay. They created a $21 million trade exception, I think. But realistically, with or without Dame there, let's be honest, who are they getting in free? Like Bradley Beal, James Harden, Zach Levine, like anyone you think might be the biggest free agents on the market this summer. I'm sorry. They're not ending up in Portland. And so you're not getting like a big time difference maker there. So, yeah, I think the, like the, best case scenario is they get used as the stalking horse. That's like if they're ex- trying to use like ex- essentially give themselves some leverage to negotiate with the teams that they want to go to. They're like, well, maybe I'll go and sign in Portland. They got all right. this cap space. Exactly. Or or maybe they get used as like a dumping ground for bigger contracts, or whatever, in trades where stars are going elsewhere and Portland uses that to recoup draft picks, which, okay, fair enough. But I don't think... Like, that's not the long game you should be playing when you trade a guy like CJ or when you go through this teardown. Well, that port- sorry, can I can I actually speak to that? I think that yeah. could be the long game they're playing 
But if that's the game they're playing, then that means trading Dame. That means right. full rebuild, which is right. not the way that it was framed, at least in like the Woj reporting, which is like the Blazers are looking to retool around Dame. They're getting leaner. They have all this cap space. And this is the plan is to like go and hunt star talent to pair with Dame, not we're tearing this thing down. And my issue with the way that they've gone about this is if that's the goal, if the goal is to keep Dame and essentially try and rebound next year and get back into pseudo contention, then why are they giving up like Nance and Covington basically for nothing? These are like throw-ins in these deals right. that are they're basically just using to get off of these guys' contracts. That is not something that you ought to be doing if the goal is to be competitive in the near-term future. And if the goal is to just do the full rebuild thing, then I don't think they've done well enough no. in terms of, you know, the future capital that they've recouped to get off to like a great start. You know no, what I mean? They, they haven't recouped nearly enough in terms of like future-minded assets, given the the talent they've given away in the short term. And they haven't really positioned themselves well if they actually intend to continue building around them. Like, yeah, they've, no matter how you slice it, they're, they've come up wrong here. And again, even if, even in the scenario where Dame does end up like um, wanting out and they trade him and that really kickstarts the full scale rebuild. That's what I was saying where it's like, even if the long game here really was, uh, seeing yourselves as a future dumping ground for bigger contracts that ends up with you taking on draft picks. That's a weird long game to play is what I'm saying. Like you, if you find yourself in that position, fine, but I don't think in the moment you should be trading guys away for what I think is lower than market value for the purpose of, well, we will open up cash space so that we become a dumping ground. Like, I don't think that's the way you do it. I think it's you recoup as many assets as you can right now. And then slowly over time, as you're rebuilding, you become that dumping ground. And that's what I was saying where it's like, it's even if that was a long game, that's a weird long game to play. Even if you're rebuilding, like it's, uh, it's just, honestly, it's a, the fact they made these moves. Isn't stunning. The way they've gone about them to me is stunning because I'm just left here thinking like, what, what is the purpose of all this? Cause any, right. any way you try to spin it, where it's like, this is the purpose. Well, you did it wrong. Well, yeah. So here's my thing, right? Like these moves in a vacuum. I mean, even in a vacuum, I'm not crazy about the the move with the Clippers. I just don't think they got great return there. But like the McCollum one, I think is fine. I, I don't love them just throwing Nance in there. But like, okay, you have McCollum who we've talked about his flaws as a player and how difficult he can be as a centerpiece to build around. And we can get into more of that when we talk about the Pelican side of this. But they get what could be a really good first round pick. They get Nikhil Alexander Walker, who we both picked as a breakout candidate before this season has yeah. had a massively disappointing year, but I definitely still think has some untapped upside. Like the ability is there. Th this That's trade looks, uh, this trade looks a lot better. If Nikhil Alexander Walker becomes the player, we both think he can be. Sure. So you get a good, like a, an interesting young player in Nikhil Alexander Walker. You get a good first round pick. Probably you get Josh Hart, who's a really excellent role player. And again, if this is like part of a full teardown, you could flip him. Like there are any number of teams around the league. I think that would be willing to put a first rounder on the table for Josh Hart right now. So you could turn that into basically like two first rounders 
and an intriguing young player for a guy who's on the wrong side of 30 with some glaring holes in his game who is owed $70 million over the next two years. Like that's not bad business. But if you just sort of look at a lot of the moves that this team has made holistically, it's just bad asset management. And I know like teams can't operate that way. They can't be like, oh, well, we gave up a first rounder to get Larry Nance. So we can't then turn around and trade him. But I think it works out to they've traded CJ, Gary Trent, and three first round picks. Yeah. In order to wind up with this Pelicans pick, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Josh Hart, Keon Johnson, and and yeah, that it's it's just it's astoundingly bad asset management, and especially for a team that was already low on like avenues to really change their course. The Josh Hart thing too, like Josh Hart's having a good year. We were talking was it yesterday off air about how he's been the Pelicans' third best player this year, but. If the Blazers are going about this as like a cost-cutting um, maneuver, then I don't even know how much we like include Josh Hart in this kind of net return looking at their future because if they're looking at it as a cost-cutting thing, then I assume they're going to waive Josh Hart before June 25th because he's got an interesting contract where he's got two years at a roughly $13 million per year after this year, which is actually very fair value, like great value for what he's provided this year. But if he's waived before June 25th, that becomes completely null and void. Like it's not partially guaranteed. It is not guaranteed at all. It's fully non-guaranteed. So essentially it's an expiring contract if they waive him by June 25th. And again, if they're if this whole thing is about cost cutting, I could see them doing that. So I don't even know how much we include him in their net gain from this going forward now if they were to keep him I, I think that's a fine move because not not the trade as a whole is a fine move but like him being there is a fine move because like I said I think Josh Hart at 13 million a year for the next couple of years is actually good value mm-hmm. I just don't I don't think that jives with what they're apparently doing and so I would assume they're gonna waive him to get him off the books and in that case it's like you don't even really include him in their net gain. You just include his like his ability to help them clear more space in their net gain. Well, I, I think that again would just be terrible asset management if that's so the way, if that's the way they decide to go with it. Like I think either they're keeping him because they see him as being a, a piece of like the next competitive team that they're trying to build around Dame, or they're flipping him now because he has a lot of value. He's on like I mean you mentioned like the sort of funky intricacies of that contract, but I think any team that is looking to acquire him now is going to guarantee that contract for next year, right? And then there's like a mutual option for the year after that, which is like you yeah, very rarely see anything like that in the NBA. Yeah. But point being, there are a lot of teams that I think would be willing to fork over a first rounder for Josh Hart right now. Like, you know, the jazz package that we've heard bandied about, like the Joe Ingles contract plus a first rounder. I know that's a it's a distant first. It's like, I think their 2026 first is the only one they can trade. But they would 100% do that deal for Josh Hart like yeah. today. And I'm sure there are other teams that would do something similar. So they can still clear the space is what I'm saying, right? Like yes, yes. they get an expiring like Joe Ingles or, you yeah. know, Goran Dragic, something like that, where they still clear the space, but they get an asset as well. And right. I think like they're, they're not just going to like not guarantee the contract and get the space that way. They can pull in another asset. 
They can. I don't know if they will because the Blazers seem to be operating in uh, weird territory. No, but I mean, that would just be like... (laughs) They're operating in weird territory, but they're not just going to do some dumb shit just to do it. Like, I... Either they're keeping Hart because they think he he's a long-term piece or they're getting off him now because they see him as having immediate value that they can recoup. They've got two guys. Obviously Hart is much more um, of a coveted target than a guy like Eric Bledsoe, but they do now have two guys like that where they've acquired them within the last week. They're on the books theoretically for next year, but um, you know, Hart fully non-guaranteed Bledsoe. I think the guarantee it's like a partial guarantee where if he's waived by a certain date, it's like less than 4 million for next year, I believe. So the Blazers now have two of those guys that they've acquired within the last week that I do think they could now turn around and flip before Thursday afternoon and get more from Hart more specifically Bledsoe. Like, I'm not sure. What, what do you think they could get for Bledsoe uh, as, as just a guy that can go in and be like a, another ball handler, you know, a capable ball handler for a team looking for some guard depth, a couple second rounders, not even a second rounder, a conditional, nothing meaningful. You don't even think a second rounder. I mean, maybe like a second rounder for a team that's projected to have like the 55th yeah. overall pick or something like that, where it's like you're barely better off than just signing an undrafted guy. Like you could get that kind of a second rounder, I suppose. But I, again, like for a team, I guess, that's looking to offload salary, then you could mm-hmm. think about that as like Bledsoe has this small guarantee for next year. So maybe a team is willing to fork over a half decent asset in order to do that just to get off money. But yeah, all of this is like, it's up in the air because we don't really know what the Blazers are trying to do. Again, if it's like full rebuild, then yeah, hey, give us all your bad contracts. You know what I mean? Like, right. we'll give you Josh Hart, we'll give you Eric Bledsoe, we'll give you these guys with like flexible contracts that if you want to clear space, you can do that. We'll take your bad contracts into our cap space that we've opened up now. And that actually starts to make some sense. But again, that that means they're trading Dame, which I think at this point, they should really be thinking long and hard about doing. No, they should absolutely be doing. Yeah. Uh, And I do want, I mean, like, they're not making these moves without Dame's sign-off, right? So I wonder where he is in all of this. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way that they're turning around training CJ without clearing it with Dame first. Not a chance. So either they talk to Dame and they're like, we're going to do this and this is going to be a precursor to us trading you or we're going to do this and this is going to help us build a better team around you and we just sort of need your okay in order to pull the trigger. Like one way or another, he was in the loop and I just wonder what he's thinking right now. Like is he planning his his escape route or is he legitimately thinking, hey, this is going to help the team turn things around and build a better team around me? 100% he's in the loop. If he, if Damian Lillard, gave the green light for these moves while informing the Blazers he remains committed to Portland and he actually meant it. Like if he, if he truly right now continues to want to play for the Blazers and actually believes that these moves will help them build a winner around him, he is one of the most delusional people in the NBA. Uh, well, what do you think? <laughs> like, I think he <laughs> might be one of the most delusional <laughs> in the NBA no man I I think I think well I don't know like I I was about to say I think he's got one foot out the door and whatever he like regardless of whether he's telling them he's good with these moves as part of the future or not I think he knows he wants out but I say like I say that and then I catch myself saying that and it's like how many times have I said that over the last you know two years that he's probably got one foot out and 
like, I, I don't buy what he's saying. And then yet here we are years later and he's still there, you know, not running, not running from the grind. Well, Dane, that grind's getting pretty damn grinding. Get the hell out. Whatever he is saying, whatever the conversations have been between him and the Blazers front office or Blazers ownership, there has to be some part of him that's looking at these deals and thinking this is going to make it optically a lot more tenable for me to ask for a trade because I'm looking around and CJ is gone and Norm is gone and possibly pretty soon Nurkic is going to be gone and Nance is gone and Covington's gone. Like, what am I sticking around for? Nobody's going to begrudge me for asking out at this point. Like he's that, that has to be a thought that's in his mind right now. Right? Yeah. And I would respect the hell out of him if that is his thought and he straight up lied to the, like if, if they were like, Hey man, we're gonna do all this stuff and we're gonna try to like help you next year. And if in his mind, he's thinking this is dumb. I'm going to get the hell out of here. But he lied and said, yeah, man, go for it. I respect the hell out of that. I'd respect that more than I would respect. I would respect that more than I would respect if he honestly believes that all of this will lead to them helping him out and building a winner there. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't make sense that way because like, <laughs> he needs the Blazers to work with him because he still has four years on his contract. Yeah, He needs their cooperation in order to get him where he wants to go, assuming that he wants to go somewhere else. So him like trying to pull a fast one or hoodwink them yeah, but isn't going to work because they, he doesn't have any leverage. He's got so much term okay, left on his contract. I'm, saying, I'm not saying that in two months he's going to be like, hey, you got, by the way, guys, I was bullshitting. Send me out. He'll just be like, hey, man, I've been thinking about it and... I don't know if yeah, I, those and, and moves play- I told you to make. I think well, I, okay. I think I might have well, been wrong. When I was talking about, I, I don't, I don't think he came up with these moves and was like, "Hey guys, I was brainstorming this last night. This deal for CJ, like make." I don't think that. I think they probably approached him with the overall plan. Like, look, we're gonna clear some contracts. We're gonna, you know, clear some money for the the summer and all this stuff. And that's what I'm saying. If in his mind he's already like, "Okay, this is dumb. I'm out the door," but he's like. Oh, well, but this will also make it easier for me to leave. I'm, I would, I'm fine with him still being like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And like, and then leaving it, like asking out anyway, I'm saying I would respect that more than if he earnestly believes that these moves, because at that point it's just like, well, then you're delusional, man. And that, that's, that I don't respect, but you hoodwinking your team in, in the hopes of putting yourself in a better situation. I mean, I'm not going to hate on that. The game's the game. Well, I just can't wait until this all ends with you bestowing the loyal loser mantle on Damian Lillard. I mean, it's been sitting idle ever since Giannis Antetokounmpo made you yeah. eat it piece by piece, piece by delicious piece. Yeah, and it was. It was it was uh it was gourmet <laughs> loyal loser mantle. So, all right, let's let's hit on the Pelican side of this before uh, before we talk about the Cavs Pacers trade. What do you think about this from the Pelicans' perspective? How do you think this changes the next couple of years for them, the rest of the season for them? I mean, do you like this move for the Pelicans? It's kind of, I don't know that, I, like, as much as I'm not crazy about it from Portland's perspective, I, I don't know that I'm crazy about it from the Pelicans' perspective either, but it definitely addresses a clear area of need for them. I just wonder how much it really moves the needle and whether they're falling into sort of the same trap that they fell into with Anthony Davis, where they are in such a frenzy to kind of appease the potentially flighty superstar that they think might 
be looking elsewhere that they wind up sort of handcuffing themselves in terms of the upside of the t- of the of the team that they can build in the big picture. I don't know about that actually, but like yeah, what are your what are your thoughts? Look, on the surface, I never you know, I never like when a team that's kind of in like the play-in mix or you know, right now currently sitting as 10th in the West is giving up draft capital to get a little better. But I think the Pelicans are in a unique situation. One, they had already given up some con- some sort of control of that pick. And they're not your typical like 10 seed that is kind of going nowhere and stuck in the middle. Like this is a team that if things break right for them, and a lot of that has to do with Zion's health, they are a lot better than where they currently reside. And I know that's a big if because you know, it's coming from me who's said not to trust, you know, that Zion will be healthy and playing basketball until we see it consistently. But still, there obviously is an upside there that is a lot greater than this kind of stuck in the middle 10 seed playing team that's there. And from that perspective, I completely understand this. I'm not, as you said, I'm not crazy about it, but I get it. Like, I'm not going to hate on them for trying to get better and doing this because look, CJ, for all of his flaws, like he, he is a consistently efficient scorer who can soak up, you know, like a bunch of possessions, some ball handling, like he, he does a lot of good things. Like he's a good NBA player. You know what I mean? We get lost in the flaws sometimes because it's hard to construct a championship team around him and this and that. But like, he's a good NBA scorer who, you know, has been a part, who's been a sec, the second or at worst third best player when Nurk was at his best, I guess, on some good teams. And I think the Pelicans got better. And if you can like project forward and if Zion was healthy and if you have Zion and Ingram and, and CJ and Valanchunas and Herb Jones and uh, who am I, like Devontae Graham, look, there, there's some defensive question marks there, no doubt about it. But the way I look at it is like, okay, look, they got better. I don't know. I don't know how much better they could have gotten while moving a limited amount the other way, you know, for as much upside as we think Alexander Walker has. Like if you look at the package they gave up to get CJ and Nance as well, like that, they didn't really give up that much to get better. And so that's why like, I can't hate on this at that point. I feel like I'm just kind of nitpicking a team that's facing some challenges right now. They got better. They didn't give up much to do it. They did. I think even if it's just a little bit, I do think they elevated that future ceiling a little bit because CJ is under contract a couple more years. And one thing I've been saying is like, yes, for all of his flaws, he he, he does good things. He's still a good NBA player. And $69.1 million total over the next two years isn't great for CJ McCollum. But there are certain teams where you can talk yourself into that's not being egregious. And I think New Orleans is one of those teams. And I think he'll help them. And so... Yeah, this could look bad if Zion never gets healthy or he wants out like very quickly and they are left in a similar situation as they were with AD where it's like they tried they tried to add to a team that wasn't good enough anyway mm-hmm. and they gave up some future-minded assets to kind of just to be this middle-tier team. But at a certain point, you also have to try to, yeah, to no, get I agree. I mean, I don't... And I think they're trying to do that. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that because of all the draft capital that they got in the Anthony Davis trade, they haven't actually hamstrung their their future dealings all that much, right? Like they still have viable avenues to kind of improve the team's ceiling moving forward. So I think they're that's dealing the from big... a position of strength if when they're talking like draft capital, right? And I think that's the big difference actually between this era 
and the AD era is like now because AD asked out when he did and because they were able to get such a haul in exchange for him, they actually have a little bit more leeway to make moves like this where it can be a win now move, but they haven't compromised the future too much. So I agree with you for the most part. Um, You know, with healthy Zion, I think this team could be like a top five offense in the NBA. I mean, JV, Zion, Ingram, and McCollum, like that's that's a whole lot of offensive firepower in a four-man core. And then, you know, you have some flexibility to fill those lineups out with defensive specialists like Herb Jones, who's actually like shown quite a bit of pop at the offensive end lately. So, and as a lot of people have pointed out, you know, the, the starting lineup with Graham, Hart, Jones, Ingram, and JV has been like one of the best lineups in the NBA this season. So I wonder if, you know, sacrificing some of the two-way balance in that lineup in, in exchange for like the more offense-oriented CJ is going to hurt that. But I'll take it back to what we were talking about with McCollum a couple weeks ago, where you were asking, you know, why is it like he's clearly a skilled player? He's a wonderful ball handler, a great self-creator. Um, he can pile up points, even though, you know, you mentioned he does it efficiently. Uh, does he really? He's like, he's been below average in terms of true shooting for like most seasons in his career because he doesn't get to the, he doesn't get to the rim. He doesn't get to the free throw line at all. Um, and so despite the fact that he is typically shooting around like 40% from three, he's still coming in with like a true shooting percentage below 55% most years. And this year, I think he's at 53%. So is, is, is 53, yeah, I was gonna say is 53, not more average for guards for guards. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, like I, I feel like it's, it is closer to average ish efficiency, but I think on his volume, like it's still, it's still something that a lot of teams would want. Like a guy who could score at that volume. Yeah. While even providing average efficiency. I get it's not overwhelmingly positive. Like I'm with you, but I think it is something that a lot of teams do crave. And it is something a lot of guys in the NBA wouldn't be able to do is even score with an average efficiency at that volume. Yeah. It's more about, I think the volume of self-created stuff, which is super, super valuable, especially if you're Mm -hmm. thinking about the playoffs. But I don't know that I would say if I'm listing CJ McCollum's strengths, I don't know that I would be like, he's an efficient scorer. Uh, that wouldn't be near the top of the list. But point being, the limitations that we pointed to were like, okay, he's a small guard. He has these defensive limitations. And that kind of boxes you in, in terms of the type of players that make sense to pair him with in a backcourt. And I actually think the Pelicans are one of these teams where you have enough shot creation in the front court with ingram and zion that you could like the point guard in these lineups could be more of a a defense like a defensive minded connector and it doesn't like right now it's Devontae graham which i think is a a bit of a tenuous fit especially defensively and this is kind of like the the unfortunate part because a perfect backcourt partner for cj on this particular pelicans team would be lonzo ball yeah uh and i wasn't like so down on the i wasn't so down on like what essentially amounted to like a lonzo for Devonte swap in the offseason i hated it i i wasn't crazy about it but i think like i wasn't as down on it as most people seem to be because i thought graham could be a good fit like specifically with zion and jv in terms of like his ability as a spot-up shooter, also his pull-up gravity and the way that that could work in the pick-and-roll game. but And he has been important for them, despite the fact he hasn't necessarily like 
maybe played his best. His Maybe that speaks more to the deficiencies on this roster, but Graham's presence has been important for them because of those deficiencies elsewhere on the roster. Well, that's the thing. And like we've talked a lot this season about how awful the Pelicans guard play has been, which is why obviously they wanted to go out and get a player like CJ McCollum. Right. And you look at Devontae Graham's on-offs and the Pelicans are like 12 points per hundred better with him on the floor. And that doesn't really speak to Devontae Graham having this incredible season. He's been like pretty mediocre to bad. And yet they still are so much better with him on the floor because the options behind him have been so poor, including Nikhil Alexander-Walker. And yeah, you know, Jose Alvarado, he's been a great story. Like he's come on strong recently, but they definitely saw a need and an opportunity to upgrade that backcourt. And I think, again, offensively, I mean, you think about how CJ could fit with Zion when he's healthy because CJ can work on the ball, but he can also really work off the ball and capitalize on Zion's gravity. Um, he could, you you know, make good use of Valanchunas as a role man or Zion as a role man. I mean, the collective scoring ability, the shooting between him and Ingram, and then the ball handling that him, Ingram, and Zion can bring collectively, coupled with like the rim pressure that you're going to get from Zion and JV together. Like that's, yep. that's why I'm thinking JV. like this, this has the potential to be a top five offensive team. Yeah. And CJ working some screen and roll action with JV as well. Like JV is an excellent screener and... With, and a will, hell of a finisher on the roll. Yeah. So he, he'll pair so well with CJ because, yeah, they'll, they'll work the screen roll game beautifully, like with JV finishing a lot of those. But he's also going to help CJ as well, like on some of those self-created um, actions, even in the pick and roll. Like CJ's going to get some good looks because he's working with a big man like Alan Tunis. Yeah. So that's, I, you know, it's just still dependent on like Zion coming back healthy, right? But... I mean, one thing you could say is like, if this is just a completely lost season for Zion, then making this trade, I would imagine makes it that much more likely that the Pelicans can grab the 10 seed regardless, which yeah. if that's something they want, then great. Good for them. But if or when Zion gets back, yeah, this is going to be, a, this team's going to be a bitch to play. Like yeah, the defense is going to be porous, but I think on a lot of nights, they're just going to be able to score enough to make that irrelevant. And, and that's what I was saying too, right? Where it's like, there there are a lot of teams where if you look at acquiring CJ and you'd be like, oh, and then you still got him for two years and like, you know, almost 70 million after that, it's it's a concern. The Pelicans are one of the few teams where I thought it makes a lot of sense. It's like, yeah, you've got him for a couple of years after, but the deal for them isn't egregious because you are trying to build some sort of like sustained success, however you measure that around Zion, around this team. And like having CJ for the last couple of years of his deal isn't egregious at all probably the last couple of years of his prime, like you're not necessarily the team that's going to pay him as net. Like to me, it, it actually really works out for the Pelicans. And I'll say this too, like, look, I'm a big Brandon Ingram fan. I know he, you've come around with him as well. You had him on at your West uh, All-Star team, I believe this year. I didn't, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Ingram. I think at worst, he's a borderline All-Star this year. He's a good young player that has continued to get better the last few years. Um, And there's something as well to like, helping him like I know sure like you don't make this deal to just help Brandon Ingram I get it he's also you've got him locked up for like another four years I get that but I still think there is something to be said for like a player that a young player that good who has committed to your franchise and to your small market and if this takes a bit of a load off him this season even if Zion doesn't come back and it helps Brandon Ingram play in more meaningful games this season too like 
that's obviously not the reason you make the deal, but I think that's a small victory in itself anyway. And I think sometimes stuff like that gets lost in the shuffle too. It's like, yo, they still have Brandon Ingram, who's a pretty good young player that a lot of teams would want as part of their future as well. And they've got him locked up long-term. So help him out a bit too, right? It's not all just about like, okay, waiting to set the table for Zion. It's like, yo, Ingram's here and he's committed and and, and you should be helping him because the guy's doing a lot on his own right now. And I mean, look, as much as we can scoff and be like, oh, they're trying to short circuit the rebuilding process. I have said many times, I don't really think they should be so concerned about Zion, like taking the qualifying offer and looking to get himself to New York or wherever else as soon as possible. Like they do have some time here, but there is value in a small market team that wants to appease, uh, you know, Zion's health status notwithstanding like he is a generational talent right they should want to keep him happy at all costs for them to go to him and be like look we're making these moves man we went and got cj freaking mccollum like this guy is like a perennial 20 point a game scorer like we did this for you you know i think there's there's got to be some value in that and i think because of like the because of all the picks that they had in the cupboard they were positioned to sort of thread the needle a bit where they can play for the present and still play for the future. So that's why as much as like I I have all these defensive concerns and I'm not entirely sure just how good this team can be while McCollum is there, I still think this is a move that made sense for them. Absolutely. All right, let's take a break. Uh, We'll come back. We'll talk about another trade that went down a couple of days ago and maybe tee up a couple more that we think could happen as we approach the deadline. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, before this McCollum to New Orleans trade went down, uh, over the weekend, there was a, a trade between the Cavs and the Pacers, which I think was probably the most sensible or the most obvious trade that was out there. Like this was the least surprising move that I could have imagined, uh, where you had the Cavs who desperately needed another ball handler and you had the Pacers who have been open about the fact that they are willing to listen on their core guys that are you know potentially entering something of a soft rebuild or a soft reset Levert was the easiest guy for them to move so it just you know two two logical trading partners getting a deal done the Cavs get Levert Ricky Rubio's expiring deal goes back to the Pacers along with a lottery-protected Cavs first-rounder for this year, and a 2022 second from the Rockets, which is going to be like the 32nd or 33rd pick in the draft, right? Like functionally a late first-rounder. So without without the contractual guarantees that come with it, it's that it's that juicy part of the second round, early second round that teams really crave picks in. Yeah, so that's a really nice asset for. Uh, a nice pair of assets, honestly, for the Pacers to pull back. I think they did really well here. It's a lot for the Cavs to give up for a player that I have kind of soured on. But like I have said, I think the Cavs are really good. 
I think they're pretty close to being a legitimate contender. Is Levert the guy that pushes them into that stratosphere? I'm not so sure, but I like that they're going for it. And because like he's un- he's under contract for next season, there have been talks about them potentially extending him. So it's and his age sort of lines up with their timeline. I, I think it makes sense for them as a move that can help them now and that can potentially still pay dividends down the road. So as much as I thought it was a lot for them to give up, uh, I, I don't hate it for them. Uh, I really like it for the Pacers. Where are you at with this one? So you know how with with the the Pelicans getting CJ, I was talking about how there were like only a few teams where I could look at taking on 69.1 million of CJ over two years and, and thinking it's not egregious, like it makes sense for them. I'm in a similar boat with the Cavs and Levert where – there aren't too many teams that are maybe knocking on the door of contention where I could say getting Levert helps them nudge even a little closer to get there. But I do think the Cavs are one of the few teams who it makes sense to do it. And it's because, as we discussed in the uh, deadline preview portion of last week's podcast that never made it to air because we scrapped it to talk about the uh, Blazers-Clippers deal, when we talked about Levert, we talked about the fact that his decision-making is really poor as a ball handler, right? And so... You always hear about like, okay, he's a he's an extra ball handler that a, a team looking for guard depth can have. But it's like, well, if he's not making the best decisions with the ball in his hands, like how much help is he really giving you? But there are teams where they're in such desperate need of capable um, ball handlers and a little more creation that you will take the skill he has regardless because they need it that much. And the Cavs are the most glaring example of that since losing Ricky Rubio, especially like We've talked about, you've talked about the immense burden of creation that is on Darius Garland on this team. And to his credit for a young guard, first time all-star, like he's handled it really well on a team that has had a really good season. But you cannot expect him to carry that burden all year into the playoffs, whatever, and expect this team to really have an elevated ceiling. This team needed ball handling, some semblance of creation uh, help for him more than any other team. And so they are the team that made the most sense to accept some of the flaws that come with Karis Levert because he can help them in those ways. And so from that perspective, I'm with you. Do I love the deal? No. Do I think they gave up a little too much for him? Yes. But are they the team that it made the most sense to maybe overpay for Karis Levert? Absolutely. So I completely understand what they're doing, much like I understood what the Pelicans were doing. And yes, to your point as well, I think the Pacers made off really well here. Uh, so I think... I think out of the three kind of big deals that have happened so far, like you said, this is to me the one that I can make the most sense of from both sides. And I think good piece of business both ways, even if on the Cavs and it might be a little iffy. It's a good piece of business. Go on. Yeah. I mean, so I mentioned like since Rubio's injury, Garland has spent more time per game with the ball in his hands than any player other than James Harden. Like he is just having to handle so much of the playmaking load and he needed some kind of help. Um, and like the Cavs have sort of made it work, right? Like they're still winning games in part because they have other methods of playmaking. Like they'll run some stuff through Kevin Love at the elbow or the high post. They got a lot of high low stuff going on with Mobley and Jared Allen. Like they have ways that they can sort of work around the off the dribble limitations. But I think they clearly needed another guy who could handle the ball, who could create. One of the concerns with Lavert is. He's just, 
he's not a great playmaker for others. As much as I think he's actually a talented passer, he doesn't really make use of that passing ability because whether it's just that the vision is limited or that he's like a little bit too focused on hunting his own shot, like he might look off the role man more than any player in the league. And so when you're playing with, like I assume he's going to see a lot of time playing next to Jared Allen and those two guys have played together in the past. So maybe that will help. But like Jared Allen needs somebody who can deliver him the ball on the roll, right? And so Levert is going to have to, I think, do that a little bit more than he was doing it in Indiana. I, I'm curious to see what they do, actually. Like, what do you think their starting lineup looks like now? Is it, do they move Okoro to the three and move Markin into the bench? Or do they keep Markin in the starting lineup and move Okoro to the bench? I would, another, move, they I would sp- move Markin into the bench and keep Okoro in there. The, but then the only, I guess the you could only argue, issue with that argue, is then you have no shooting in that right, starting and, lineup, and and that's why I was as I was saying that. Then I was saying although you could argue that this is a team that doesn't need that uh, any more defense necessarily in their starting lineup, they can afford to give up a little bit of D for more shooting and spacing. And in that sense, actually, Markinen makes some sense. Yeah, I, and I don't by the way, Markinen has been like pretty to, solid defensively. He's this been season. good for them. Yeah. He's been good for them. Um, yeah, if you're look, if you're looking at a starting. Five of Garland, Lavert, Markinen, Allen Mobley. Like, that's pretty good. I mean, do you see any way where maybe like Lavert is their sixth man? Or I guess does that maybe does that eliminate some of the upside of trading for him when you're talking about Garland's need for some help, like creation wise? No, I think I don't know how it's gonna go the rest of this year. My my guess would be they start together but it's a heavy stagger so that yes. Levert is basically the bench point guard. Like that's the way that it makes sense to me. Yeah, agreed. My real curiosity is, okay, when Sexton's back, then what does it look like? Because is I mean, Sexton never back on this team? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you could say, arguably, this is a hedge against Sexton getting a big offer sheet that they don't want to match. I wouldn't do that if I was them. Like I've, I've grown to really like Colin Sexton. And I actually think in terms of a backcourt fit, I like his fit with Garland a lot more than I like Levert's fit with Garland because I know Sexton didn't shoot the ball great when he was healthy this season, but historically, he's a much better shooter than Levert. He's a much better slasher. He gets to the rim way more. And and like similar limitations on defense, honestly. Like you look at Levert and he's long and he's kind of agile. Like you think that he would be a good defender, but he's not. Like, and especially as an off-ball defender, as a low man, like he's inattentive. He's not a good defensive player. So I would consider that basically a wash there. So if they're choosing between those two guys, my choice would be Sexton. I don't think they necessarily have to. I think they could bring Sexton back. I would start Sexton and Garland together. And I think Levert could be a really nice sixth man for this team, basically. Like that's how, in an ideal scenario, I would see this going. But... I don't know. I think there is definitely a chance that whether it's a hedge against Sexton leaving, whether it's the idea of like them now being able to use Sexton as a trade chip, uh, it could be before the deadline. It could be in a sign and trade in the summer because they still need wing help. Right. And so maybe they look at it and and they're now like Sexton is now our best trade chip. And this is how we're going to get the wing that we need to fill out this team. Like it could be that. The, in terms of like ball handlers they could have acquired, you know, that were going to be available for the price that they were willing to pay. Uh, I think this is about as good as they could have done. Yeah. I, I got no arguments with that. You want to, you want to talk about 
couple of guys left on the board or what? Well, uh, Ben Simmons apparently is still on the board. Does that <laughs> does that move you? Oh, has he not been traded yet? <laughs> um, no, a, a report this morning from Brian Windhorst uh, suggested that despite there there had been a previous report, I think from Woj, that there hadn't really been any substantive discussions between the Sixers and the Nets about the, the Simmons-Harden thing. But Windhorst reported this morning that According to a lot of people around the league, it is entirely possible that that deal goes down before the deadline, which is, it's just wild, man. I mean, we may need to eat our words in terms of like, we've been kind of hard on Daryl Morey dragging this thing out, rebuffing offers, you know, playing hardball, not necessarily negotiating in good faith. And it does seem like waiting. It's put a lot more options on the table potentially for Philly where like, I'm not saying that Daryl Morey foresaw at the start of the season that everything was going to go sideways in Brooklyn the way that it has, but shit, everything has gone sideways in Brooklyn. And now apparently James Harden is a possibility. Everything's going sideways in Portland. Maybe Dame Lillard's a possibility. Things are going sideways in Washington. Brad Beal's not a possibility because that organization is apparently prepared to just go down with that ship, no matter how far yeah. it sinks. So, and are reportedly prepared to potentially make Bradley Beal the highest paid player in NBA history, which again, I know that title doesn't mean much because like, you know, the way the cap escalates and things of that nature, like a guy will sign a deal that's the biggest in NBA history. And then a few months later or a year later, someone else takes that mantle. But at no point should Bradley Beal be the highest paid player in NBA history. The Wizards being prepared to potentially make him that speaks to what you just mentioned with that team willing to go down with the ship. And I think I'll like say, if, look, if the Wizards were smart, they would be trying to get stop, out ahead just, of this. Yeah. Just, you, you should have stopped there. No, but like, if, look, talk, if the talk, Wizards were smart, come on, man. Tommy Shepard has made some some really good has. moves since he took over there. Yeah, and it's and it's certainly a question of like how much autonomy does he have? Right. Like, does he have the authority to to just go and trade Brad Beal, or is like Ted Leone just putting his foot down and saying under no circumstances, you know, unless unless Brad is like demanding out, are we doing that? But if they had foresight, they would be trying to preempt this, get out ahead of it. You know, put pressure on the Nets essentially to be like, okay, if you want to trade Harden, you have to do it now because Bradley Beal is on the table. Like we're prepared right. to do this trade right now. That's that's what I think the Wizards should be doing. That would obviously be great for Philadelphia because they would have a whole lot more leverage than they currently do. But as it stands, it still seems like there's a possibility that they're going to come out of this with James Harden. Yeah, um, James not an All Star Harden according to Joe Walfon. He's not, <laughs> but he'd he'd still be helpful for Philly. I mean, come on, they're they're getting nothing from Ben Simmons, so I guess James Harden, like in his diminished state, would still be an improvement on nothing. Okay, I'm literally nothing. A few points here. I, Tommy Shepard has has been a, a smart uh, executive for the Wizards, and he's he's done things well. The thing is, Ted Leone just runs that team, and it's very like. So the Wizards and like the way they act as the Wizards are very much seemingly an extension of the kind of um, lack of foresight and striving for mediocrity mentality that Leonzis has. And so as an organization, I will not, I can't entertain the Wizards being smart. And so I, as much as I agree that they should get out ahead of this, <clears throat> I don't think they will. The Harden stuff, while I don't agree with you that Harden isn't an all-star this year, I obviously do agree that he's in a diminished state that his best years are likely behind him. I will also say this. As much as I like James Harden's game, as much as I think he's one of the greats, and people actually didn't really appreciate his greatness maybe as much as they should have, and as much as I think, yeah, if, if he ends up with Joel Embiid, that team can absolutely win a championship. I will also say this. James Harden 
has developed a reputation in his career for, I almost want to say running from the grind. And I don't mean that in like, well, he's just looking for a way out every time things hit the fan, but there That's are exactly of, what you mean to say. Come on. No, no, but I don't mean look running. I don't mean looking for an out is necessarily always needing a trade. I mean, even in general, like, okay, for example, some of those years in Houston where like when things got a little tough in the playoffs or when it did seem like uh, maybe hope is lost, James Harden was not the guy that still looked like, well, I'm ready to run through a brick wall to make sure all is not lost. Or I'll go down with this sinking ship and die in vain, like just to try. He was very much the kind of guy. I was like, uh, things like that are a little lost. I'm packing it in in this elimination game. Like that's what I mean from him running from the grind. James Harden has developed that reputation over the years. And then headed to Brooklyn, obviously hoping that between himself and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, not, not that it would be an easy championship. I don't want to say that, but obviously he thought he'd have more help than he has right now. You know, things go a little sideways in literally just over, it's been just over a year since he's been in Brooklyn. Things go sideways, aren't what he expected. And reportedly he's already looking elsewhere. So while I gave you heck for not having him on your all-star picks, and I think he should have been, I do think that there are a lot of criticisms, fair criticisms to level at James Harden. And, you know, when the when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, when the going gets tough, James Harden gets lost. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, man. Um, look, but the Sixers should still trade for him. The, yes, absolutely. They should still trade for him if that's an option. And worth noting, he is being held out of tonight's Nets game with uh, either this nagging hamstring injury or he's just intentionally being held out because the Nets recognize that a trade might be on the horizon. I mean, also, if you read the reporting, it seems like there's a lot of confusion because it's like, it seems like Nets reporters are finding out whether James Harden's going to play or not from James Harden as opposed to from the team or from Steve Nash. Right. And then, oh man, who I can't remember. Someone, so one of the Nets reporters tweeted today, that one of the Nets players, and I can't remember who the reporter was, who the player was, but they asked the player about Harden and the player was like, well, I don't know when James is going to play again. So there just seems to be a lot of confusion all around in Brooklyn right now. And obviously that extends far beyond just James Harden's playing status. So, yeah. And on the on the Maury point, yes. I mean, I've even in my criticisms of him, I've said, I will gladly eat my words if this does come up Maury in the end and he gets a star to play with Joel Embiid, I'll gladly eat my word and good for him and good for Philly if that happens. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, like, I, You obviously have to wonder just what the Nets are thinking right now because I, they're not considering doing this if they don't feel like James Harden is a like strong flight risk in the offseason. But again, like we've talked about, okay, there's not a ton of cap space around the league. Maybe you, you can add the Blazers to the pile now, I guess. The Blazers, the Pistons, the Magic, the Spurs. I think those are the teams now that have cap space in the summer. Like A lot, lot of leverage for free agents. <laughs> like they could, I, you know, take just take it to free agency and call his bluff and be like, fine, you know, go go play with Dame. Like have fun playing in Portland. I mean, you know, go go play in Detroit. We're not trading you to Philly. They could do that, but... I think maybe the, the thing that I have probably undersold in saying that is I, I don't think even the Nets are going to sign up to just deal with a disgruntled James Harden who, I mean, we've seen when like James Harden wants to poison the well, when he wants to play his way out of town, you know, he will show up in that fat suit 
and he will dog it on defense and he will make it as uncomfortable as possible for that team until they trade him. So it's almost like creating levers through chaos. Is that, is that the line yeah. that, that you use in these situations? Yeah, that, that yeah, that was my line for Harden last year. And my I was gonna say this year you can almost say it's when when the going gets tough, James Harden gets lost. <laughs> James Harden gets fat. Put, um, put that <laughs> put that on a T-shirt with the pound the rock logo and the score logo. People will buy it. Um. Anyway, so yeah, I just think it's uh, it's super fascinating right now because I I think big picture a, a full participant in Kyrie Irving if that ever happens. And by the way, he's a free agent that's coming off season. Like, do we know what's even going to happen with Kyrie and Brooklyn moving forward? Like what the hell? Kyrie's going to go play in like the, uh, the inaugural season of like the Joe Rogan basketball league or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm not even, I, I can't even wrap my head around a Kyrie free agency right now. Right. So it's like, okay, yes, they can talk themselves into, we get Ben Simmons. He actually fits here pretty nicely next to Kyrie and Durant. He helps us answer like a bunch of defensive questions. Offensively, we don't need him to do anything that he's not good at doing, basically. Even if he is just hanging out in the dunker spot on offense, like he could be a really effective dunker spot player when he's playing next to guys with the gravity that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant have. It could work out really well, but that is still contingent on if... Kyrie is back. If Kyrie is like a full-time player, barring that, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying like, if they really think James Harden's gone, like they probably have to make a move like this anyway, but I don't know, man. I mean, this, how many times can we say it? Like these guys have played together 16 freaking times, 16 times, man. I think that's that, how many playoff wins they were supposed to get. Not how many yeah. games. Sean, Sean Marks misunderstood the uh, adage about 16 game players. It seems nice. Anyway, yeah, it's I don't even know how to talk about this because it's just a yeah. whole mess. And it seems like the situation is like very fluid and changing constantly. And the Nets are saying one th- Steve Nash is coming out and being like unequivocally. No, we're not trading James Harden. James Harden is coming out and saying, I want to be here. I don't know, man. There's only there's only so many tea leaves that you can read before you just sort of like sit back and let chaos reign and just see how it unfolds. OK, Cash, I know we had a couple other teams and players that we wanted to talk about on the rest of this episode. But as happened on our last episode, we're going to have to scrap those plans because we have a major trade to react to in real time here. The Indiana Pacers are sending DeMontis Sabonis to the Sacramento Kings in exchange for Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, and Tristan Thompson. Uh, Sorry, Jeremy Lamb is also in that deal going to the Kings. So that'll make them feel better about this. Whoa. What, uh, what the hell, man? The Kings saw Listen, the Pelicans pushing for that 10 seed and they decided that they just, they had to get in on that mix. I mean, what, no question. Sabonis is a better player than Tyrese Halliburton right now. Right now. But man, in I, the position that the Sacramento Kings are in, they, I, yeah, I guess they've gotten better right now or they've got the best player in this deal right now. This is a very ass backwards move to me when you're thinking about them long term. I, and I don't really know what else to say. Like the the Kings are a joke. They're going for broke to end this 16-year playoff drought. I guess they are then thinking they're going to build around Fox and Sabonis, which is like, there's talent there. Don't get me wrong. But 
you give up a Halliburton for a Sabonis when you're really close to the top and you can afford to not, you can afford to kind of look at it as like, forget two, three, four years from now, we're all in on right now. Let's go for it right now. The Kings are nowhere goddamn close to that. And so I don't understand this from them whatsoever. And again, it, it sounds it sounds like a really harsh way to react when a player res, like gets a player as good as DeMontis Savonis, who also isn't, it's not like he's an oldie by any stretch of the imagination, but I just, for the timeline the Kings are on, or the timeline the Kings should be on, this deal makes not a lot of sense to me. Even even if they it ends up with them ending their 16-year playoff show, which I don't think it will, but even if it did, I still wouldn't look at this as like, well, it was, it was all worth it. They they got to celebrate a playoff berth. Like, no. Uh, I need more time to digest this. <laughs> all right, put me on the spot. Well, okay. Here's my thing. I, I think I'm actually lower on Tyrese Halliburton than most people seem to be. Like, he's definitely a good player. And, you know, I honestly said, like, even after his rookie season, I was like, he had a great rookie season. I don't know how high his ceiling actually is. And then he went and he got better in ways that I didn't necessarily expect him to this season. But I think there are still clear limitations there with him that I don't know are going to get resolved over time. Like he's a great shooter. He's actually become like a really good pick and roll playmaker, but on ball defense has been a big struggle. And offensively, he can be a little bit passive. He's pretty low usage for a lead guard doesn't get to the rim a ton, doesn't get to the free throw line a ton. But then also like he's in a second season. So this could be a move that the Kings wind up really regretting. I mean, just think about it this way, right? Halliburton is on a rookie scale deal where you get at least two more years of uber cheap production before you have to think about, you know, paying him his next contract, whatever that winds up looking like. Instead of that, you get Sabonis, who also has two more years left on his contract, but those years are considerably more expensive. He is quite a well, how much older is he really? Sabonis is 25. How old is Halliburton? He's 22, 23, because this is why we can't do this shit in real time, man. <laughs> yeah, but but I think, you know, Halliburton's earlier in the development, and again, the rookie scale con like that's a big difference. Yeah, Halliburton's 21 and soon to turn 22. I think uh, Sabonis is 25 and soon to turn 26. So, so four, it's, four it's about a four-year difference. Here, here's another thing that's interesting to me, right? Like we heard all this reporting that the Kings weren't willing to, and we don't know how how true this is, but like the Kings weren't willing to put Halliburton on the table for Ben Simmons. But they were willing to do it for DeMontis Sabonis. What do you think about that? I mean, Sabonis... And Simmons are a lot closer in quality than I think people would assume. I mean, Sabonis might even be a better basketball player. Like, yeah, like that's that's what I'm saying. Like, like I don't. It, it, it's easy to be like, well, yeah, it's foolish. But then you start thinking about it. It's like, man, look, man, Sabonis might be a better proven, more proven basketball player than Ben Simmons is. We're talking all around basketball. So, from that perspective, maybe it makes sense. And also, given. I know that the contract he's on means he would have been stuck there anyway. It's not like he could just refuse to play. Well, he's refusing to play right now. But I feel like Simmons would have been a more disgruntled malcontent in Sacramento than a guy like Sabonis. Like, I don't know how cooperative Ben Simmons would have been in Sacramento. 
even though he's on a longer term deal than Sabonis is. I don't know how I feel about the fit between Sabonis and Fox. Like if Fox can get back up to the point where, you know, forget a couple years ago when he hit like 37% of his threes, that's definitely looking like an outlier at this point. If he can get back up to hitting like 32% of his threes, then I feel like that makes a big difference. And I'm not one of these guys like, oh, there's two guys who can't really shoot. And so therefore the fit doesn't work. I do think there is some interesting stuff that they can do, whether it's in the pick and roll or the dribble handoff game. Fox working a little bit more off the ball, like his speed working off of Sabonis' passing could be really interesting. But I don't know. It's it's like, I kind of feel like this is a lateral move for both teams in a way. Like definitely the Pacers, if you think about what they're trying to do, where they're thinking more long-term, they get off Levert and they get a couple of nice draft assets. They turn Sabonis into a much cheaper player who's four years younger, who possibly has higher long-term upside, although I'm a little bit skeptical of that. I mean, in a vacuum, like that's just good business. But then like you zoom out and it's like, okay, do we really feel like this has changed the Pacers' long-term outlook all that much? And then with the Kings, it's like, I don't even know what the Kings are doing, man, or what their what their goal is in the big picture. I just don't like, yeah, okay, it could be interesting. Sabonis is a good player. But I'm looking at the Pacers team that Sabonis was unable to lift beyond extreme mediocrity, and honestly worse than that this season. And I'm wondering what he's going to be able to do to lift an even poorer supporting cast in Sacramento. Not a whole hell of a lot. And the Kings making deals that just always have us questioning what the hell they're doing and leave us confused about what they're doing is the reason they are where they are and where they why they've been where they've been for the last decade and a half. That's it. And I feel bad for DeMontis Sabonis that he now has to go there and, and be part of that. For two more years. <laughs> and yeah. He'll be up out of there, probably. Uh, I mean, that's that's the other thing, too, right? Like, okay, so Sabonis is going to get to free agency in a couple... I mean, maybe they'll extend him, I guess, if they, if they see him being there long-term, but... Yeah, the Kings are a joke, man. If it wasn't for the respect I have for the basketball fans in Sacramento, I'd say contract this team. I, I wonder also, I mean, do you think the Pacers then turn around and try and flip Buddy Heald for something? Like, can they get anything for him? I mean, yeah, like, theoretically, they should be able to get something for him. Like, Buddy Heald has his defensive challenges, but, you know, he's a elite shooter. They should be able to get And I think he's got two years left on his deal. I think you can get something for Buddy Heald, but I do wonder if it if he almost gets lost in the shuffle here because there's just so much going on around the league this week, and it might be tough to now turn around and flip him. I think you can maybe get something for Buddy Heald. I'm just not convinced that he will be moved twice in the span of three days. And there's always a market for shooting around yeah. the league. I, anyway, I, I think... God, I don't know, man. I, I Again, I just like need to sit with this one for longer because it's like a real head scratcher, but most things are when it comes to the Kings. So yeah, that's for sure. Simone is a good player. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to act mm, like I good. had him on my East all-star team. Yeah. He's a really good offensive center who is only 25 years old. I don't want to act like going out and getting Debonta Sabonis is like a bad idea, but for this Kings team with where they were at trading Tyrese Halliburton, Along with, I mean, maybe they're just like, they weren't getting any bites on healed, but that to me is like another guy where in the right circumstance, maybe you could have gotten a first rounder for him. So 
that's another movable piece that you threw into this deal along with, you know, your young building block point guard on his rookie scale deal. Doing that to get DeMontis Sabonis is kind of a bad move, man. Like, yeah. I just don't, I'm having a really hard time rationalizing it. As Although much as I, as much as I like Domus as a player, like I really yeah. do. Maybe kind of a bad move is an upgrade for the Kings. <sighs> Jesus, man. They just they really want that 10 seed, right? But how like well, I, I don't the think the funniest part is gonna be that they them. still don't get it. They They're not gonna get still, it, right? Like they still not get it, yeah. I would still they, I would still give the going. Pelicans the edge there. Like so if I'm I. if I'm picking who's gonna get the 10 seed, I would take the Pelicans over the Kings. So, so would I. And 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 the Pelicans are going for broke to get into the play in and they would still be up against it to even get into the playoffs. Like they're going for a broke to get closer to the playoffs while still not making the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll say again, I do think Sabonis is a better, like he's clearly a better player than Tyrese Halliburton right now, like by a significant margin, but given the kind of tenuous fit, the fact that I don't think he solves any of the Kings issues at the defensive end of the floor. And the fact that like the Kings are already where they are in the standings. I just don't think that that gap in current ability is nearly enough to do for the Kings, what they would need it to do for them in order to justify what they surrendered in terms of long-term equity. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like that's, I guess my, that's my pithy summary of, of the trade. I'll do your work yeah. for you, Cash, on this one. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it, because I'm I'm out of it right now. Um, um, yeah, I think I think that does make sense. Okay, so let's let's cap it there. I'm sure, like b- before we're done editing this and have it up, there will be another massive trade that goes down, and this will already be out of date. We're we're rapidly losing pieces on the on the chessboard as we enter like the actual deadline day that's supposed to provide all this excitement it's all happening in the days beforehand so i don't know who will be left on the board uh by the time thursday rolls around but plenty of excitement so far i am going to throw it over to you for a fan shout out cash but before i do uh just a programming note for our listeners uh after friday's episode which uh will have us wrapping up whatever does go down on deadline day I'm going to be taking some time off pretty much the rest of February and all of March to uh, do some hardcore parenting. Uh, My wife, Sophie, is going back to work and I'm going to relieve her on primary care duties for that period of time. And you may recall a few weeks back, Cash and I talking about what constituted the dog days of the NBA season. And we pretty much landed on the period from after the trade deadline until the ramp up to the playoffs in April. So I thought about that and I thought that seemed like a good time for me to take a little bit of time off. And so that's what I'm going to do. So for that period of about seven weeks, cash is going to be steering the ship, bringing a couple of fun guests on and uh, I'm sure doing some really fun, and interesting things with the show. Although I would imagine that that means scaling back down to one episode a week for that time period. So just a heads up, that that's what's going to be happening. Uh, apologize for the disruption in the schedule, but just something I need to do. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, Wolfon understands that uh, ball is life is just a funny idiom and not an actual way of life. And obviously family comes first and uh, everyone 
obviously myself included, and I'm sure our entire Pound the Rock community supports Wolf going uh, full dad mode for a month and a half here. And obviously we'll get him back and we will be doing two a week again in April. And then once the playoffs come, so, you know, this is not, uh, not a ramp down of Pound the Rock at all. It's just bear with us for like a month and a half after the deadline. We'll be back down to one a week. It will just be me with, again, uh, you know, different guests for six or seven episodes. We'll still be doing fan shout outs. You know, the show will remain largely intact and the same, just uh, without Wolf on keeping me in check when I've got some wild uh, rants and, and takes and theories. Uh, but other than that, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep pounding the rock once a week for about six or seven weeks. Then we'll get Wolf back and, and we'll go into the stretch run for the playoffs. So, yes. Uh, that's the programming note before that. Of course, we will have fun, uh, with the two of us still co-hosting on Friday, wrapping up the deadline. Let's get to the fan shout out this week goes out to Chuck Semprini goes by at Semprini 15 on Twitter. He had uh, quote tweeted one of my pound the rock tweets uh, a few weeks ago saying that it is the best NBA podcast around. And then he did mention it's the only one that he's heard the, uh, it's the only one I've heard where someone reacts with the appropriate disgust to a serious argument that Wiggins deserves to be an all-star. So Chuck obviously agreeing with Wolf on there, did follow up later that he was on my side in the uh, Harden versus Drew debate. But nevertheless, Chuck, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for considering us the best NBA podcast around. And I did want to say, so I checked in on uh, Chuck's Twitter today to find it, to kind of confirm where he was listening from. And I see that he's got his location as Victoria. I'm going to assume it's Victoria, BC and not uh, Victoria in Australia, but maybe I shouldn't assume. Um, but anyway, when I went to go and double check Chuck's location, I also found that his most recent tweet, which I liked and talking about the Blazers. And he said, they're doing it incompetently and mostly to save a billionaire scumbag some money. But God, is it a relief to be done with the Dave CJ era? That's the kind of tweet I can appreciate, Chuck. So thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for being a listener. And uh, the usual call out, if you're a listener of Pound the Rock, whether this is your first time or 224th time, hit us up on social media at Joey underscore W-Y-O-U on Twitter, at Joseph Cacharo on Twitter, at Joe underscore 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 cash on Instagram, joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com via email. Let us know how long you've been a listener, where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Thanks for that, Cash. Thank you again to all of our listeners, as always, for tuning in, for writing in, for everything that you do to make us feel appreciated. Uh, the feeling is mutual, and we appreciate you too. So we're going to log off here, uh, and we'll be back on Friday with, hopefully, another batch of exciting trades to talk about. For now, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Talk to y'all later. Talk to y'all later.